we're going to continue with our Acts series in Acts chapter 5. And I've added a reading. I've added a reading from Matthew's Gospel. And if you looked at the bulletin, um, just just a, a note. For the evening worship, the final hymn is not 427. It's 420. Uh, it's not 4024. It's 427, excuse me. Acts 5. I'll read 5, 1 through 11. Hear the holy word of our holy God. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. The reading that I've added is Matthew chapter 6. This is a familiar passage. Right after, we're going to read uh, Matthew 6, 1 through 6. This is the same chapter as um, the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer that we use in our, our liturgy every week. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So that when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street quarters, so that they will be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you see everything, you know everything. We ourselves are open and be fair, bare before you, Almighty God. May we believe these things. May we tremble. May we always look to you, Lord Jesus Christ, for our, our righteousness, for our right standing, for our reconciliation. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use this word of admonition given to the early church, that we would flee from hypocrisy and playing at our faith and and present to you, Lord God, open and honest worship and, and bear a good testimony before you 
that we are being truthful in our lives, especially in our worship. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Acts, Acts 5. There we are. Let me bring us up to um, where we are in Acts chapter, chapter 5, mentioning what we looked at last week. This week is the negative example, and then the previous week, last week, was the positive example of laboring to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, loving people with word and deed, which the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, is to love in truth. That's, that is to say, not just say, saying, I, I joke sometimes, love you, man, love you, man. Uh, be warm and well-fed, as James says, to your naked and cold brother and then having the wherewithal and then just walking away with just words. Uh, that's what we're going to look at today is something of hypocrisy and true religion, um, which perverts true religion. Last week was the positive example of loving God in, in uh, word and deed with, with, um, with Barnabas. And you remember from last week's passage, we looked in chapter 4, that dealt with the brothers and the sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ in the Jerusalem church in a particular time and place and situation, they were sharing their goods with other brothers and sisters in the Lord that had need. They were selling. Barnabas had an extra tract of land. He sold his land and he gave the proceeds to the apostles. The apostles distributed to those that had need. We mentioned last week, this is need, need. These are brothers and sisters that don't have enough clothes and they don't have enough food. And so the wealthier brothers and sisters that had the extra of the world's goods, they shared with them. And we mentioned last week as well, we would do the very same to our blood, uh, hopefully, with our blood family. If we had a mother or father that didn't have any clothes or enough food to eat, what, what child would not give their mother or their father clothes? If we had a son or a daughter who didn't have enough clothes or didn't have enough food, what father or mother wouldn't give their own food or clothes to their child? And so these brothers and sisters were treating other Christians like real brothers and sisters, like real mothers and fathers in Christ. Then I kind of emphasize that word, real. I know in Presbyterian circles, Reformed circles, we don't usually say brother Joe and sister Sally and Baptist circles and those. I do. I refer to people as brothers and sisters. Uh, we are brothers and sisters. And, the, and, and to the extent that we re- really believe it, we will live out the faith that we say that we have in real, practical, tangible ways, as we saw Barnabas doing last week. One of the reasons there were poor people in the Jerusalem church, as you remember, primarily the church consisted of Jews that professed faith in Jesus. And you remember what the leaders of the synagogue said to the Jewish folks in the synagogue, if you profess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, this Nazarene is the Messiah, what will happen to you? Out, the go, out you go. And so being excommunicated from the synagogue at this time is not like being excommunicated in a church today. I'm not poo-pooing excommunication. It's the largest form of church discipline. Um, and we're ministerial, not magisterial in our church discipline. But, but if you get excommunicated, let's say, from this church, what do you do? You trot down to Bob's OPC or Sally's PCA, and then, you, well, you're not the OPC, but you tr- trot down to another church, and then you join that church. And then you become the minister and all those kind of things. But if you get kicked out of the synagogue here, what happened to you? You're a social pariah. You're a social leper. And with that social leprosy, 
Um, it hurts you practically. Your kids couldn't get good marriages, and you couldn't often. It hurts you financially, materially. It hurts you in the pocketbook. So you became poor. So one of the reasons that the folks were needy in this church is because their Christianity came with a cost, a real cost. And sometimes folks in the modern American context, our Christianity doesn't come with a cost. Or any kind of Christianity that presents itself with a cost, we think that's way too much Christianity. I can't get out of bed and go to church or anything like that. That's too much to turn on the TV. This came with a real cost. You profess Jesus, you could potentially be poor or worse. And so the the brothers and the sisters who had more of the world's goods, they were serving and ministering to their brothers and sisters in the Lord uh, because there was a a real need. And so mentioning that cost of Christianity, when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith, when you really believe in Jesus, and there's a difference between being raised in the church, being baptized, and then being born again. There's a, there's a marked difference between being in the church. The blessings of being a believer are every blessing in the Bible. There's reconciliation with God. God is our Father. Christ is our brother. The Holy Spirit's our counselor. Um, we have a reconciled relationship with God. God loves us. And not only does he love us and provide for us here, um, when we die, the blessings are, 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 are infinitely beyond our wildest imaginations of how good it is to die in the Lord and what it will be like to die in the Lord. So, so blessing upon blessing, that, that's the reality of being a Christian. But also the reality, reality of being a Christian, when you truly embrace Jesus, that means you're truly at war with those who hate God and hate Christ. Now the war begins in earnest. And that's part of the, the cost of being a Christian, that those who do hate God, they hate Christ, they will now hate you. And some of those people may be our moms, our dads, our brothers, our sisters, our blood family. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, you think I came to bring a a peace? I didn't. I came to bring a sword. So if you love Jesus and your dad and your mom don't, there may be a potential conflict. That's what's going on. So we're blessed, blessed, blessed in Christ. But at the same time, we are involved in a real spiritual warfare. Now, with that said, these Christians are helping their fellow brothers and sisters. Barnabas, in that last section that we looked at, he's the object lesson. This is strong faith. There is, there, the Bible presents Christians as babies, as toddlers, as young men, young women, and then older men and older women. In 1 John chapter 2, I think. And, um, and it's possible to have a small faith, true faith, but small. And it can, be, it can be growing and strong for these believers to reach into their pocketbooks and sell an extra piece of land or a house, and then to give it all away. That's faith. That is, that is faith. We are not justified by our works. We're justified by faith alone before God, by faith alone according to the grace of God. However, our, our deeds do testify whether our faith is genuine or not. So faith without good deeds is useless, as James says in James 2, 14 through 26, these Christians are testifying in their word, Jesus is the Lord and Savior. He's died for our sins. He's risen for our justification. And then they testify that their testimony is true by this. So, the, so for the person that can quote to you Calvin's Golden Book of, or Calvin's Institutes and, or the Catechism in Ugaritic, and then he sees his brother who's naked 
or hungry and he has an extra measure of the world's goods and he doesn't help him, he just gives you the, the catechism answer in Ugaritic, that's useless. That is, that is, that's useless. I could train a parrot to say I love Jesus or to quote the five points of to, to, uh, uh, Calvinism. So our, and I'm not, this is not a pejorative against that. I believe those things. But what we're looking at is our faith is a heart thing. You can't really see the heart. But whatever is in our hearts coming out of us is going to come out of us in our words. It's going to come out of us, out of us in our deeds. And Jesus is the greatest testimony that we're true Christians is what? Love of the brothers. Love of the brothers. Love other people that love Jesus. Of any size and stripe, Methodist, Episcopalian, Baptist, Pentecostal, if they believe this, the true gospel, they believe that the true Christ, they're our brothers, and we're supposed to love them in word and deed. And Barnabas is that example. of He is, the, the fun thing about Barnabas, and it's a kind of a long introduction to this, he's a Christian living like a Christian, and I don't mean to be silly like that. Sometimes, and sometimes it's us, um, we Christians, we love Jesus, and we really do love Jesus. But then if people look at our lives or listen to our words, they think what? Oof, that word wasn't very Christ-like. <laughs> that action wasn't very Christianly or Christ-like. Sometimes we have to squint real hard to see whether a person, really, that, that guy's a Christian? That girl's a Christian? Really? This is a guy who is a Christian. He's trying to live a Christian life. And he's imitating Christ, giving his stuff away. And what do I mean by that? There's a place I want to say, 2 Corinthians. He who was rich became what? He who was rich became poor for our sakes, that we who are paupers might become rich in him. That's the positive example. Long introduction to, to this passage. This is the negative example. Parents teach this way all the time. When we, I've mentioned this before, when our kids were little, but now we're grandparents. But when the kids were little, we, before we were Christians, we were never going to say no. I don't know why we thought this stupid idea. But we were never going to say no. We were going to be super positive. And you can't raise a kid without saying no because they're going with their finger to the electric socket and you have to say no. The Bible does this. Imitate this positive example. And then God says, don't imitate this negative example. This is the first Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 14. God uses three or four examples, negative examples, from our fathers in the faith, Israel, and says, don't be like them. Don't be idolatrous. Don't be grumblers. And here is another negative example that God, the Holy Spirit, inspires and says, do be like Barnabas. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. They're, they're play actors. They're being hypocritical. Don't be like them. And then we're going to see it surrounding the same idea of money and wealth and, and giving our things to uh, relieve the poor. So now we come to uh, to Barnabas, as, to Ananias and Sapphira. I say that they are, um, one of the major sins that they're committing is the sin of hypocrisy. And this is, if, if you were not raised around Christians or yourself were not a Christian and then you became a Christian later in life, I'm going to tell you something you already know. You don't have to be a Christian for five seconds if you're out and about with non-Christians before you're going to hear this is their favorite thing that they drop Christians with. Y'all are a bunch of what? Hypocrites. You're a bunch of hypocrites. That's their favorite thing. 
And then they drop kick you with, with, with Matthew chapter 7. You're judgmental. The Bible says don't judge and you're being judgmental. So they're going to slam you with being a hypocrite or slam you for being judgmental. Now, hypocrite, the word hypocrite comes from an ancient Greek word, which means a ma- uh, what a mask, uh, an actor wore in a play. They put a mask on. So it, it covers your real identity. You're playing a part. That's a hypocrite. And it's very pertinent. In this case, to be hypocritical in this context is to be a religious hypocrite. To, to put a mask of religiosity over oneself, pretending that you are more righteous, more holy, more loving, more kind than you really are. So they're putting a mask on these two, the husband and wife. They put the Barnabas mask on. They want to look like Barnabas. And the reason they put the mask on is because inwardly they're not Barnabas. Inwardly they don't have that. Everything that I am is for Christ. Uh, my being is for Christ. My house is for Christ. My lands are for Christ. And if Christ's people are hungry, here, that's Barnabas. And these people put that on and say, oh, that's us. But inwardly, it's not. That's why we were in Matthew chapter 6. They're coming before Peter. They're coming before the apostles. They're coming before the church with this, oh, yes. Oh, look, we're giving it all away. And what do they want? They want the praise of men. They don't want the praise of God. So this isn't being done to relieve the poor. It's not being done for the honor of Christ's sake or the good of Christ's church. Not not in whole. In part, it's being done for what? So you think more highly of me than you should think. That's what's going on. So they are being hypocritical. Now, I want to I want to talk to, to three things for the remainder of our sermon. I want to talk about the people themselves, Ananias and Sapphira. I want to talk about the sin that they're committing, the many sins they're actually committing, in addition to hypocrisy, and then the divine recompense. And I'm going to be shorter with the recompense part. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory. But let's talk about the people that are before us. The name, I'll talk to their names. Ananias is the uh, the Greek form of the Hebrew Hananiah. And Hananiah means uh, the graced one or the grace of the Lord. The, the grace of the Lord. And, um, and uh, Sapphira means beautiful. So when this little baby girl came out of her mother, like all of us, <laughs> we look at our little babies that come out of mama and we think, oh, that's the prettiest my daughter says of both her boys, aren't my boys the two most beautiful boys you've ever seen? I hope every mother, when they look at their little baby, thinks my little babies are the prettiest little babies in the world, right? And so this baby came out and the mother and father said, she is Sapphira. She's beautiful. So we have a man who says, graced, graced of the Lord. And then we have a woman, beautiful. Just very, it's just a, a kind of an applicatory aside. Beloved, what this passage is teaching us, remember, this is instruction to the church. Not everything is what it seems to be. <laughs> Not everything is. When you look at the outward, outwardly you can be, wow, you have a black suit and a nice checkered tie. You look so squared away. Yeah, I'm totally squared away. But inwardly, you might not be so squared away. Or the, or the woman in this case, she could look outwardly beautiful and maybe even outwardly in this instance, religiously beautiful. But everything's not always what we see. Um, men look at the outside and we get kind of fooled. Oh, wow, they look like they're squared away. But God looks at the heart. 
So even though this man has a name that he's graced, or this woman has a name that she's beautiful, they have a heart problem. They have a heart problem. This is all of us. This is all of us. Our problem is not fundamentally an external problem. It's not that we're sick or poor, we need a little medicine or a little counseling. Fundamentally, our problem is a heart problem. And we're sinners and we're not right with God. We're not beautiful. (laughs) Apart from God, we're not the gracious or the graced ones. We need grace. And the beauty that we need is not our beauty. We need Christ's beauty. So we're taught not to judge outwardly by what we see. And we're inclined to do that, are we not? We, we, we do this. We look at a person. Oh, wow. Look, look, and look at him, and look at her. What do you all do for a living? Oh, you're a doctor. Ooh. And then I, I, I used to, this used to happen to me. I was a carpet cleaner. And so someone would say, oh, what do you do? I don't know. I'm a teacher, and you're a doctor. You get a plus. And they would say to me, what do you do? Oh, I clean carpets. You get a, you get a minus. You get a minus. We all do that. But it's not always what God is looking at. God want, God's looking at the heart. Is this a man or a woman after my heart? And here, these folks have, uh, as beautiful as they are externally, they have a heart problem. And the other thing that we learn, I know this is going to seem silly, but I think it's worth pointing out. So, outwardly, they're beautiful, they have a name that they're graced, and they're married. They, they, they are married Christians. And what I'm about to say next, you're going to think, boy, I can't believe you're going to say this is so simple and silly. It is going to be simple, and it will appear silly, but I promise it isn't. I believe that we live in the last days, even the last hour, because the Bible says it. So I'm not a dispensationalist anymore. I'm a covenantal theologian. But we're in the last days. We're in the last hour. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, the love of many will grow cold, and lawlessness will increase. And we're we're there. And so when we're talking about these married Christians and they're actually helping one another sin, which is a lesson for us. Christians, married husband and wife, are supposed to help one another religiously. They're hurting one another religiously. They're leading one another in sin. That's part of the lesson. But as regarding marriage, this is the silly part. But because we're apostate, it's not silly. Um, Ananias is a man. Um, Men are males. Males are men. <laughs> Sapphira is a woman, and women are females. Or what is a woman? Okay, I can answer that. A woman is an adult female. Females are women. And marriage is between a man and a woman only. There is no other approved precept. There is no other approved practice. If you pull out polygamy, that's why I'm using the word improved in there. There's no approved precept or no approved practice other than an adult man, male, marrying adult woman, female. That's marriage. And you think, well, that's silly. It really is not silly. Uh, I will be 58 next week. If you had asked me 10 years ago, would I see what I'm seeing now regarding these things? Never in a million years. And I've been a Christian since, what, 26, 26 years old? If you had asked me... Uh, 10 years ago, would I see Christians imbibing cats turning themselves into dogs and dogs marrying dogs? And would I, would I see that? No, 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 no. Look around, beloved. Look around. Our kids, my kids are what, in their 30s? Our kids are believing this nonsense. Boys can become girls and girls can become boys and girls can marry girls and boys can marry girl, boys. No, they cannot. 
the Bible is our rule for faith. Is it not? Are we Protestants indeed? Or it, 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 the Bible alone? Well, you're going to, boy, then that, that's going to put you at odds with your employer. Yeah, that's what we just said at the beginning. True faith in Jesus, Bible faith in Jesus, is going to come with a cost. You won't get a promotion. No, you probably won't. No, you probably won't. If you say this stuff, if you live out that faith, but this is true. So they're married Christians. Now, I just mentioned that um, Christian husband and wives are supposed to help one another. Who's the leader in this situation? Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife. Who's the leader? Who's the leader? Men are the leaders, right? This is like some men. I, I'm not big into the patriarchy. Actually, I get a little nervous when I hear certain patriarchy things because there are some goofball people in that movement. But they're big to, to quote Ephesians 5, which I believe Ephesians 5. Wives will submit to your husbands. But it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. He's the leader. Men are the leaders. God has chosen the husband to be the head of the wife. So he's to lead. He's to lead in love and grace and mercy. We're not talking goose-stepping. If the guy has to pound his, I am the leader, you have already failed if you have to do that, in my opinion. If, you, if you're pounding, look, look at me, I'm the leader. You have a problem. You need to talk to me. You have failed. You, you lead by mortifying your desires, by picking up your cross, by serving your wife, by dying to what you want. In, in and Ananias is responsible as a Christian husband for Sapphira, his wife, to do what for Sapphira? Ephesians 5. Let's do Ephesians 5. You die for her that you might present her a spotless, pure helper. He's responsible to lead her in righteousness. This is a Christian home. You, you say, well, I'm not a pastor. I wasn't either. I drove a truck. I was a carpet cleaner. But I was a husband. So if you're a Christian husband, you are responsible before God for your Christian wife to lead her in the things of God. And if she's going down the wrong way, religiously, spiritually, honey bun, we're going this way. That's spiritual danger. We're going that way. Let's get away from that. That's what he's responsible to do. That's the leadership. And instead, what is he doing? Instead of leading her in righteousness, what is he leading her in? Unrighteousness. That's an aggravation of sin. This is a larger catechism, 151. I know I've quoted that a million times. Read Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer, 151. People say all sin is equal to all sin. All sin will keep you out of heaven if you don't find forgiveness in Christ. But it's not as equally gross or heinous. This sin of the superior, Adam is the, Ananias is the superior, he's the leader, and then she's his helper, he is aggravating his, his sin. Rather than taking, the Puritans would call um, the wife the closest, your closest neighbor. So next to Jesus, you better love your wife more than anybody else on the planet. So this is a form of non-love. Why is it a form of He's failing. He's failing in his commission. He's been commissioned by God to take care of this woman. And he's leading her in sin. Tell him we sold everything. Tell him this is the whole price. And what does she do? Okay, honey bun. You want me to lie again? Yeah, lie again. This is, this is an aggravation of his sin. It's so, and you think, what husband, Christian husband, would hurt his wife and lead her in sin by a bad example? What Christian husband would set before their Christian wife a bad example of Christ? I shaved his face this morning. 
<laughs> we, we all fall short of this. So this is just a gross example. This is just an open example of a guy who really fails. And of course, we kind of grade things. Well, that's a really bad failure. We all fail. Every husband that says, I love Jesus and really does, and has a wife that loves Jesus, we fail in this. But we're supposed to love our wives and lead them in righteousness, and he leads her in unrighteousness. So this is a double sin for this particular guy. Now, Sapphira doesn't get out of it either. It's her sin, but it's a double sin. Now, they're professing Christians. So they're, they have a name that they live. They're married Christians. They're helping one another in sin when they should be helping one another in righteousness for Christ's sake. And they're professing Christians. Remember in, in um, Acts chapter 2, round about verse 42, in Acts chapter 4, a number of places, these folks are members of the Jerusalem church. Uh, the apostle Peter is the leader of that particular ch- church. And remember what we said at the outset uh, about Ananias and Sapphira, because the, they are blowing it here. They're not, <laughs> they're not doing what they should do. But I want to back up and say some good things about them. We just said a boatload of the Jews that professed Jesus got kicked out of the synagogue and, and it came with a real price. These are these people. The, these are not. So when we, sometimes when you think it Pharisee, Pharisees, they're easy. Ah, oh, easy, those Pharisees. They just start tithing a dip, mill, dip, milled, a mint, dill, cumin. They're just fasting twice a week and they're just reading their Bible and going to church all the time. Ah, those Pharisees. They're easy to drop kick. They're easy. Most Christians don't pray or read their Bible near what we say we do or we should. So I don't know. They sometimes beat us in those things. And even like Ananias and Sapphira, we can say, look at this sorry, hypocritical people. Be careful about that. These people profess Christ when it was not socially acceptable to profess Christ, right? We live in an era, America, what is there some, I don't know what it is, a census that says like 75% of Americans are Christian. I had I don't know what they're, how they're, what they're saying as a Christian, but be that as it may, maybe I'm showing my age. Um, most people don't want to be thought of. I, maybe it's changing now. They don't want to be thought of as a heathen or an atheist. And in America, you, like if you say something to someone, "Are you a Christian?" They're going to say, "Of course, I'm a Christian. I'm an American. I'm a Christian." Something like that. That's not this. So. Our professing faith doesn't really come with a cost. We said here, it does. And these people pay the cost. So these people profess faith. They join a church. They attend a church when it came with a real cost. So there are things that we could say concerning Ananias and Sapphira that are admirable. Usually you don't see uh, an example that's all good or all bad, right? Except Christ. He's all good. So they, they did things which are commendable, but at the same time, they're doing something which is not commendable, which is they're committing the sin of hypocrisy, pretending that they're better than they really are. Now, so that's kind of them in the big picture. There's two possibilities here for the spiritual estate of these people. I say this all the time. I said it Monday, Tuesday to a person I met. And this is a view that I hold. I think it's right. All people in the, on the planet, we have one or two problems. We either have a justification problem, we're not converted in the Lord Jesus Christ, or we have a sanctification problem. We are converted in Christ, and we need to be increasingly sanctified. So a justification problem, um, that you're an unbeliever and need to be a believer, or a sanctification problem, you are a believer and need to be increasingly conformed into the image of Jesus. 
So when you're looking at Ananias and Sapphira, you're thinking, well, Satan indwelling is hard. That's not a good thing. Them dying after they sin, that's not a good thing. Well, they're categorically unbelievers. Let's just talk on that. You have two choices here, and and I'll speak to both choices. And I I am not dogmatic uh, on on these folks. I have my inclination, but I'm going to give us both possibilities. And remember, they're church members. And this this idea is applicable uh, to to current church members. We we talked about uh, a hypocrite as a play actor. Number one, if these people are hypocrites in their hearts, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus would look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, you hypocrites, you personally in your heart, you're a play actor. You're saying one thing, but your mask, uh, and your mask is presenting one thing, but you're another thing in your heart, that you really are unconverted. So in the church, there are people who say, oh, I love Jesus. Love him so much I can't even take it. But inwardly, that's not true. What person in the New Testament church would be a, a real hypocrite in their heart? They said they were something. They said they were a minister of Jesus. They said they were a preacher of Jesus. But in their hearts, they were a tool of the devil. What person? Judas. Judas preached Christ. Judas was given power by Jesus to do miracles in the name of Jesus. But then what did his deeds prove? He, oh, I, I'm going to give money to help the poor. I'm so concerned about the poor. He's a thief. And he sold Jesus for the love of money. Here's a person in the church, as it were. They have a name that they live, but they're true hypocrites in the heart. They're play actors. And, and so that is a possibility when we look at these people. And that teaches us something thematic about the church. There's no perfect church on the planet. Uh, and I don't mean OPC, PCA, anything like that. It doesn't matter what kind of church you go to. It does not matter. On the earth, there is no perfect church of 100% elect, true believers. Um, it's just not possible. The Bible says that the church on the earth is a mixed multitude. And th- these people are teaching the possibility of being in a mixed multitude church. You have Judas in the church. Um, mixed multitude is represented by the various figures. In the same church, you're going to have goats and sheep. You're going to have wheat and tares. That's what these people represent. And so this teaches us not to idolize the church, not to think that the church necessarily saves. Christ alone saves. And so they represent the possibility of being in the church, but not in Christ. And beloved, that's all important. I was raised Roman Catholic, so the question always is, what church? And so for them, the Roman Catholic Church is going to save you. So I was very keen. So when I was sharing with my sister, my older sister, Catherine, Catherine, oh, Jesus, you need to believe in Jesus. Her question isn't about Jesus. So what church? Should I go to your Mickey Mouse five-person church or should I stay in the real church? <laughs> like, no, you're missing the problem. It's not, it's not the church. It's not are you in the church. It's are you in Christ. And they represent that. So a real hypocrite in the heart. Justification problem. The other thing that these people present us with the possibility of, this is a sanctification problem. They're not hypocrites in the heart. They're not play actors. They're real Christians, but they're acting hypocritically. There's a big difference. I'm not, I hope I'm not like splitting hairs. So they're not hypocrites. They truly do believe in the Lord Jesus. They truly have repented, but they're in that instance acting hypocritically. 
They're saved sinners who in this instance are sinning. I want you to think of that. You think, well, I don't know, Pastor. I don't know. Okay. Ask yourself this question. Are all Christians that ever knowingly lie, are all Christians that ever knowingly lie, are they categorically unbelievers and on their way to hell? Are all Christians that knowingly engage in any known sin, are they thereby proved to be unbelievers and therefore on their way to hell? I hope not. Because I'm not going and you're not going either. Right? But what this shows us, and I, I, I don't know what I... I think one thing for him and one thing for her. There is no Christian... There is no Christian, there is no Christian, real Christian, real go-to-heaven Christian that does not sin against God in thought, word, and deed. And we even make up little terms, little white lies. There is just a little white lie. They're just insinuating a certain thing. So we should be careful about putting them in hell. We should be careful about putting anyone in hell. We, that's one of the favorite games of Christians is judging other people and then putting them in hell. We, sh- we shouldn't do that. That's God's business. He's the judge. Th- this, this is here, one, to see, are we in Christ? Are we believers? And then the other thing is, I would argue, in part, this is a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call. Christians who are sinning, they're saying the blood of Jesus saves me from sin, and then they're engaging in sin. And then God says, and I know that you're doing it. When we as Christians engage in sin, we do something like this, at least the species of it. We look around. <laughs> we look around. Who, who's looking at me? And if anyone's looking at us, what do we do? We pick up the Psalter and we start singing the Psalms. But when no one's around, what do we do? Whatever we want to do. What this is teaching us is God says, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at What do you care what people think about you? Because what these people thought, I want people to think I'm super good. Don't you want God to think that you're living holy for Christ? We forget God. So this is a this is a wake up call for us. I would argue, it, if we looked at these people as professing Christians receiving, say, fatherly discipline, we would sin less. We would be more afraid of sin, and we would love God and Christ more if we really believed. Wow, I'm living quorum deo. I'm living before the very presence of God. So. We have the possibility that they are either unbelievers and then we have the, the other possibility that they're believers who sin. Now the sin that they're committing is they want to appear extra righteous. They want to appear more righteous than they, they really are. And wanting to present yourself as a Christian that loves Jesus, that loves people, that loves to relieve the, the poor, that's willing, that's a good desire. I mean, in the land of my birth, I always wanted to run the Boston Marathon. So I lived vicariously through my wife and she ran the Boston Marathon. You're not going to run the Boston Marathon with just a good wish. You're not eating ding-dongs sitting on the couch. But it is a good wish. It was a good wish. I'm sitting there eating ice cream and she's running the Boston Marathon. (laughs) So I'm wishing she's doing. It's a good wish. I I would love to be looked at as as a... as a Christian, a good Christian, a loving Christian. That's a good wish if we go about it lawfully. But they're just not going about it lawfully. It's good to give part of their goods if we're open and honest about it. And the sin that they're committing is, um, 
They're li- the Bible says that they're lying. Now they do it with a, a form of deceit, which is devil-like. Deceit is usually, it's a form of lying. And our kids do this. Um, I won't use my son as an example, but a, a, a funny one when he was a little kid comes to ex- But deceit is something like this. We omit the truth. We carefully omit a certain truth that if we told, if we, if we added that in, then you would go, oh, okay, I see the situation. We just carefully leave it off. And we kind of, with a sleight of hand, we're hoping that the mother or father doesn't ask us. We just omit it. And then we allow you to come to the conclusion we want you to have. So you're insinuating something. So clearly in this instance, Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias wants the apostles, wants the church to think that he gave the whole kit and caboodle. He wants them. But you see, by carefully omitting certain things, it allows you a plausible deniability. You have, you have, you have a built-in um, uh, answer. Oh, I didn't tell you it was all all. I said, I said, what is is? I don't know what it is is. So you're omitting certain things and then letting the person come to their conclusion so that you have a built-in excuse. That's, that is devil-like. That's, de- that's deceiving. So even Christians can do stuff like this. Did God really say? This is a deceit. This is a sleight of hand that they're doing. And he wants the apostle Peter to think that he gave all of his proceeds when he, when he doesn't give all of his proceeds. The interesting thing with that is, is regarding the proceeds, the apostle Paul says, listen, when you had the property and it was yours, it was yours. When you sold it, it was, it was yours. The money was yours. So the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is not that they held part, back part of it. Was They lied in holding back part of it. They would have been, it would have been not sin to them if they had, it would have been wrong if they had not give, if they had not given to help the poor. But it would not have been sin if, say, they gave a portion to, to relieve the poor and kept a portion for themselves and told the Apostle Peter, we kept a portion for ourselves, we're going to buy something else. Fine, no sin. But they want to appear something that they're not. They want to appear more righteous, more holy. They're, he's hiding certain avarice or greed in his heart. And that's what he, he does. And then obviously we're going to see the recompense in just a bit. Now, let's talk about Sapphira. So the Apostle Peter changes his tact. He calls her in to come talk to him. And I'm going to say this very briefly. I'm not feeling very feisty at all today. But he calls her in, and she comes before him. And he calls her in, and she comes before him before a simple reason. He's the leader of the church. Um, God is not an anarchist. God is actually against anarchy. Anarchy is chaos, and chaos is of the devil. God has order. God is a God of order. Um, And God has three main societies. First, the society of the family. He has order in the family. And there is hierarchy. There's structure. There's leadership in the family. There's the husband and the dad. And then in the church, he has leadership in the church. He has leadership in the state. And so when someone says, well, I think I am the leader and I think I'm this and I think I'm that and I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes, that's a bad thing. (laughs) That's a bad thing. So the very first thing that we learn concerning, at least when he talks to Sapphira, there's leadership. There is leadership in the world and there's leadership in the church. And so she comes and submits herself to Peter and she says, "What what would you like? And he changes his tactic with her. 
And, in, and with, the, with the husband, he says, why did you lie? <laughs> with the wife, look at what he says. He gives her a chance. All moms and dads do this to the kid, right? You catch your kid when they're little and they can't lie very good. You catch them dead to rights. They've got like chocolate all over their face or something like that. And you say to them, did you eat the cookies that I told you not to eat? And they're covered with chocolate. And you're giving the kid the opportunity to tell the truth, right? And the kid's looking around going, no, no, I I didn't eat anything. That's what he does with the wife. He gives her the opportunity to tell the truth. Uh, Just as an aside, beloved, I think God does this to us all the time. We get caught in a sin. People usually only see me. Pastor, I have to come confess the sin. When the wife catches them, most husbands don't come and talk to me unless the wife caught them with the glossy pictures. They don't talk to me. And then I want to say, you're busted, right? You're not coming because you're coming. You're coming because someone busted you, your wife, right? That's not confession. That's not confession. When God the Holy Spirit says, go ahead, what's the truth? It's better to go the way of non-Sapphira and take your lumps like a man or a woman. But she doesn't. She lies and she says, that's the whole price. And so clearly she's obeying the husband over God. And then Peter says, why are you testing the Lord? Why are you testing the Lord? You know, Deuteronomy chapter 6, God says through Moses, don't test me. And how is she testing the Lord? How is she testing or tempting the Holy Spirit? She is essentially saying to God, you don't know. She's doubting that God knows the truth. She's doubting that God knows her heart. She's doubting that, what does the Bible say in the book of Numbers 32? Be sure your sins will what? That's this. That's this. Christians, when we sin, husband or wife, we don't think that we're going to get caught. That's why you look around to the left and to the right. You don't think you're going to get caught. Acts chapter 5 comes along and says, you're already caught. (laughs) You're caught. God's looking at you. But here's the scary thing. We're not as afraid of being caught by, by God as we are by man. And be sure your sins are going to find you out. Some, mem- some leader in the church, your wife, your husband, your kids are going to come in and say. And she doesn't think. She says, no, no, I don't think I'm going to be caught. And God says, you're caught. God the Holy Spirit reveals it to Peter with the husband. God the Holy Spirit reveals it to Peter, to, to the wife. And now here's the recompense, and I'm going to be briefer. Uh, this is a catechism question. What's the wage of every sin? What's the, way, what's the wage of every sin? We grade sin, all of us, as, even as Christians, we grade sin. Big sin, um, small sin. My son, my daughter's little son, the two-year-old, no, the, the older one, the two-year-old. Everything's big. Big truck, big shark, big truck, big surf, big lizard, big, big. Everything's big. We do that with sin. Big sin, little sin. We think murder is a big sin. At least most normal people thinking murder is a big sin, except some people think murdering babies is a divine right. That's a big sin. Um, and we don't think lying is all that bad. Ah, lying. Ah, whatever. <laughs> lying. Yeah, you just tell a lie. What's the wage of every sin? This is the holiness of God. This is why the people walk away and they're afraid of God. The Christians are afraid of God. This is a good fear. This is the sovereignty of God. This is the holiness of God. And we don't think so. God is three times holy. And when I say he's sovereign, this is what I mean. The Apostle Peter says what? I swear to God, I don't know Jesus. What do we call that? We call that a lie. Does Peter drop over dead right away? No. 
what happens to him? He goes to fatherly discipline 101. (laughs) He gets fatherly discipline and God corrects him. And then God administers his fatherly discipline sovereignly. So this Christian tells one lie in this instant and what happens to them? Whammo. Wait a minute. You mean God treated one servant differently than he treats another servant? Yeah. You know why? Because he's God. God lets some, some sinners sin one time and whammo, dead. God will let another sinner sin the same sin a hundred thousand times for 50 years. And then, either judgment or discipline. And God has committed no injustice. God has committed no injustice. God says to, two, to a father, the first high priest, Aaron, who loses his first two boys, Nadab and Abihu. I will be sanctified by all who draw near to me. That's this passage. I will be treated as holy by every Christian that says, I love Jesus. Jesus' blood has cleansed me from my sin. If you're mocking God by living in your sin, God allows the sovereign right either to administer justice to you, showing you that you're an unbeliever, or to fatherly discipline even to the point of this. You think, will our God, if I'm a real Christian, would he ever use even this as a discipline? Yes, read your Bible. Yes, read your Bible. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Read the administration of the Lord's Supper. For this reason, a number of you are sick and even a number of you sleep. Fatherly discipline. And And then the result of this passage is the Christian's fear. Now, I'm going to say this and quit. I promise. This is a very good thing. This is a very good thing. I'm going to include myself in this. I'm a modern Christian. And we walk around and we treat God like he's our cosmic buddy. Hey, hey man, hey man. (laughs) He's the creator of heaven and earth. If Christ came into this room right now, and he's here right now by his spirit, but if we could see the risen Christ, what would we all be doing right now? we would all be on our face right now. Would we not? And we would be trembling like we were what? Dead men. We would, we would, be, we would have reverential fear and awe. Oh, beloved, this is what we need. We need this. We need the positive example of Barnabas and we need the other example. God will be sanctified by all those who draw nigh to him. May we fear God and may we love God in Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.